through the hallways of academia and on the face of the moon the footprints of conquest haven't left us any room to say Greetings and welcome to the 13th edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. I'm Sekhmet Sheowl, resident female separatist. Today's podcast is about the debate surrounding feminists collaborating with right-wing women and organizations to combat the gender identity movement and fight for other causes we happen to take the same side on. We'll hear from Kaylee Triller-Haver, a conservative Christian who participates in Hands Across the Aisle, Natasha Chart, a member of the Women's Liberation Front who sits on the board of directors, the Stop Trans Chauvinism Coalition, and Ree Sisters member Max Robinson, a detransitioned lesbian who is strongly critical of feminists aligning with right-wing activists and organizations. Niall Pierce will present today's commentary, which highlights the nuances within the right-wing that are often overlooked in polemical feminist criticism. She argues essentially that hyperbole leads to misunderstandings and perpetuation of the divide in feminism, and creates problems in our ability to progress in our fight for total liberation. But first, the news headlines, as read by Jenna DeQuarto. Spring, summer, and fall are women's festival seasons, and there are quite a few coming up we'd like you to know about. The Reformed Congregation of the Goddess International will be hosting their spring women-only priestess gathering in Wisconsin Dells the weekend of May 20th. There will be female-centered rituals, dances, workshops, and more at this annual event. For more information, visit www.rcgi.org. The following weekend, Memorial Day weekend, Cinema Sisters will be holding its second annual Lesbian Film Festival in Paducah, Kentucky. Featuring a wide variety of films and performances, you can learn more at www.cinemasisters.com. Wolf Fest is happening in Northern California this year, from July 21st through the 24th. Join hundreds of women in the Redwoods to enjoy the radical feminist poetry of Dominique Christina and Jocelyn McDonald. In addition to attending stimulating presentations and workshops led by Lear Keith, Saba Malik, Max Dashu, and Samantha Berg. For more information and to register for this fest, go to www.wolffestival.org. Trans-identified male Fallon Aubie, previously Jean-Paul Aubie, has applied for a transfer to a women's penitentiary in Canada based on a new policy prompted by comments made by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau earlier this year. The new policy considers trans-identified inmates for placement in prisons based on their gender identity rather than their sex. Aubie is serving a life sentence at British Columbia's Mission Institution for first-degree murder. As you may or may not have heard, Saudi Arabia has been voted into the UN's Commission on the Status of Women to hold a four-year term beginning in 2018. The vote was a secret ballot, and Saudi Arabia is one of 13 countries total on the commission. 
The objective of UN Women, as stated on its website, unwomen.org, is as follows. UN Women, among other issues, works for the elimination of discrimination against women and girls, empowerment of women, and achievement of equality between women and men as partners and beneficiaries of development, human rights, humanitarian action, and peace and security. Saudi Arabia came in 141st out of 144 nations in a 2016 report on gender equality from the World Economic Forum. One Human Rights Watch researcher asks, how can Saudi Arabia seek to promote women's rights globally when at home they continue to severely discriminate against women through the male guardianship system. The guardianship system is exactly what it sounds like. Women are considered permanent legal minors, and as described by the Human Rights Watch, quote, adult women must obtain permission from a male guardian to travel, marry, or exit prison. They may be required to provide guardian consent in order to work or access health care. Women regularly face difficulty conducting a range of transactions without a male relative, from renting an apartment to filing legal claims, end quote. In regards to the UN appointment, Canadian Conservative MP Michelle Rempel expressed her hopes that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau would, quote, be equally as incredulous as I am over this decision. If you really are a feminist, if you purport to stand up for women's rights, that means all women around the world. Where is the credibility of the United Nations as a whole if we're putting countries like Saudi Arabia on the Women's Rights Commission? Coinciding with British Prime Minister Theresa May's visit to Saudi Arabia last month, the social media campaign Resistance by Walking had Saudi women documenting themselves walking and cycling solo to oppose the country's oppressive ban on women driving, and the guardianship system in general. For all intents and purposes, driving has been off-limits to Saudi women since 1957. After decades of it being a mere customary ban, an official fatwa banning women from driving was issued in 1990, and as recently as 2013, the Ministry of the Interior stated its intention to continue to enforce the policy. Just last year, the deputy crown prince of the kingdom commented that Saudi Arabia is still, quote, not convinced about women driving. Saudi women and their allies have in the past petitioned the government to change its law on women driving to no avail. April 26th was Lesbian Visibility Day. Several online women's groups and media organizations celebrated the day by publishing works by well-known lesbians and encouraging women to honor the L. The L is the letter that gets the least amount of positive attention in the LGBTQI community. The existence of lesbians and lesbian culture is a direct threat to male control of women, which is why it is important to create spaces for lesbians to gather, to see each other, and to be heard. Following a four-year undercover human trafficking investigation called Project Raphael, York Regional Police in Ontario have arrested 104 men for attempting to sexually exploit children. According to York Regional Police Detective Sergeant Tai Truong, many of the men arrested were married, disrupting the oft-repeated lie that sex buyers are simply lonely, or socially awkward men who need company and affection. A story covered by the BBC Southeast tells of a sex-for-rent presence on classified ad websites in London and surrounding areas. Ads generally offer free housing with zero bill pay for a female flatmate in exchange for sexual activity. WLRN was able to find these ads with ease. Many were blatantly casting a line for certain kinds of women for the explicit stipulation of sexual reciprocity. Specifications such as Arab, Asian, Black as listed in one ad, or kink-friendly as another poster so innocuously put it. Others took the time to post photos of the space. Some simply kept it quiet but frank. Must be open for adult arrangement. Friends with benefits. Nice room available. Are you female and looking for a free room? No rent, no bills, no deposit. Genuine offer. The situation has caught the attention of charities in the region who recognize the obvious problem with advertising for such an arrangement. Mel Potter of the Brighton Oasis Project, a women's addiction recovery charity, said, It's something that potentially can trap someone and put them at risk of violence and abuse. End quote. 
exactly the kind of situation described by two former tenants with whom the BBC spoke. Andrew Wallace, the founder of Unseen, a UK-based charity that works to combat modern slavery and human trafficking, is quoted as saying, They would argue that they have chosen voluntarily to enter that situation. The trouble is when you have a vulnerable person who then becomes exploited, the concept of choice soon disappears. Indeed, one landlord familiar with such arrangements is quoted remarking, You can argue that high rent charged by landlords is taking advantage too. There is no compulsion for them to do this. Everyone goes into it with their eyes wide open. When asked whether such arrangements were sexually exploitative, he said people working in jobs they do not like was, quote, like a form of prostitution. Hove MP Peter Kyle has spoken out on the matter, saying the websites need to disallow such ads and that he's willing to take it a step further if need be. There is an added onus on the owners of these platforms to root this out and to deal with it. And I'm being very explicit because if they don't stand up to this and then accept their responsibility, I will be pushing for legislation to do it for them. Magdalene Burns, popular feminist YouTube vlogger, announced on April 23rd that she had been diagnosed with a brain tumor. She describes the size of the tumor and the proceedings she is having with her surgeon in a YouTube video you can see on her channel. To support Magdalene economically, consider a donation to her PayPal account you will find listed beneath the April 23rd video. Some encouraging news from Indiana University in the U.S., similar to current Southeastern Conference policy, Indiana University Bloomington recently addressed the issue of student-athletes with histories of sexual violence. The policy, spearheaded by the school's athletic director, Fred Glass, states that, quote, any prospective student-athlete, whether a transfer student, incoming freshman, or other status, who has been convicted of or pled guilty or no contest to a felony involving sexual violence, or has been found responsible for sexual violence by a formal institutional disciplinary action, at any previous collegiate or secondary school shall not be eligible for athletically related financial aid, practice, or competition at Indiana University. Indiana University Athletics shall conduct an appropriate inquiry into every prospective student-athlete's background, consistent with the due diligence below prior to providing him or her athletically related aid or allowing him or her to practice or compete. The statement goes on to define what it considers sexual violence and also what it means by due diligence. Background checks, investigation into the prospective student's digital footprint and public domain information, plus interviews with those close to the student, as well as specific inquiry into, quote, any previous or potential arrests, convictions, protective orders, probations, suspensions, expulsions, or other discipline involving sexual violence or any other matter. The full policy can be viewed at iuhoosiers.com. WLRN interviewed former St. Paul School Board candidate Tasha Rose for our April podcast about the misogynistic attacks made on her person when she announced her run in March. Miss Rose dropped out of the race, but she teamed up with Emily Zenos from Hands Across the Aisle, a women's advocacy coalition, on April 24th at the Anoka Hennepin School Board meeting in Minnesota to address transgender issues. The following are clips from Miss Rose and Miss Zenos, as well as a clip from one of the numerous pro-gender identity supporters who spoke at the meeting. Sex-segregated spaces are segregated by sex, not gender. Why aren't we not striving to make sex-segregated spaces safer for those who do not conform to gender-based stereotypes? Why are we also not advocating for better mental health access for those with suicide ideation? Instead, it's being demanded by dogmatic groups who advocate unverified personal gnosis and ideology as fact, that the majority must cater. It's not justice or equity for anyone, including trans-identified people. 
We are women who disagree on a lot of different political issues, but we do agree that it's a scientific fact that women and girls are physiologically different from men and boys. Policies that redefine sex as gender identity ignore the biological differences between the sexes and pretend as if there will be no disparate impact on girls. But when gender identity wins, girls lose. Girls lose sports scholarship opportunities because biological boys are just faster and stronger than girls. Girls lose female-only academic scholarship opportunities because no one will be allowed to turn biological boys away. And girls will lose private spaces where they can change their clothes or shower in public facilities because it will be discriminatory to refuse biological boys access. Maintaining policies based on biological sex protects all students. In seventh grade, in this very building, downstairs in the locker room, I was assaulted by a boy. I immediately told the first teacher that I could find. And he told me two things. If I report it, everyone will know. And this will just happen to you again. The other thing he told me is this is the sort of thing that just wouldn't happen if you looked and acted more like a boy. In seventh grade, I was very afraid to come out, but I was starting to test the waters by being a little bit more feminine with my clothing. And the boy who assaulted me said he wanted to see if I was really a girl because that day I was wearing button fly boot cut jeans. If a transgender affirming policy existed back then, maybe the teachers and the students would have been more understanding of what kids like I was go through. Maybe if I'd have seen the policy, I'd have had the courage to come out at a younger age. And maybe I could have avoided the crippling depression and the self-harm that I use to cope with what happens when you deal with multiple assaults, all because I had no hope that I'd ever get to be myself. When we see policies, you give us that hope by enacting affirming policies that show us that we're loved and that we're cared about in this district. Baby, you understand me now. If sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are Baby, I'm so carefree With a joy that's hard to hide And then sometimes again it seems that all I have is worry And then you're bound to see my other side But I'm just a soul But that's one thing I never mean to do Cause I love you Oh, baby, I'm just human Don't you know I have faults like anyone Sometimes I find myself alone 
That was Nina Simone with her song, Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. We now turn to a clip of an interview Kaylee Triller Haver gave to Niall Pierce. Kaylee Triller Haver is a founding member of Hands Across the Aisle, a coalition-building women's advocacy group that works across the lines of left and right to bring women together in their common struggles. She is a Christian, a mother, and a writer with a passion for justice for girls and women. Here is a portion of the interview Ms. Triller Haver gave Niall Pierce. I, I, I'm true blue conservative. I mean, I, I just am. <laughs> so to be perfectly transparent about that, and I always have been, but I think it's unfortunate that people like me are only ever invited to see what you just described as the face of feminism. And so when that's the case, I think a lot of us just shut it down so fast because we recognize it as something that is absolutely not something we can even identify with at all. So to discover Wolf and discover radical feminism as somebody who's kind of outside those circles was just eye-opening and very much refreshing because I thought, okay, this <laughs> reasonable people, you know, who, who actually care about women, um, imagine that. So I would say, I would kind of have to guess that like most people who come from the circles that I do or believe in things that I do write off feminism like entirely because they see it as what you've just described. And that's unfortunate. You know, I can kind of sit right in the middle and be like, oh, but you're not seeing this. Oh, but you're not seeing this. You know, and I'm a, you know, hopefully this doesn't end the conversation, but I'm a pro-life woman. But what is very frustrating for me in this conversation too often is that is automatically assumed when I say that, that that comes from a root of internalized, like, patriarchy and because I hate women, as opposed to, well, in my, the way I see the world, I think it hurts women. And I know that's a very unpopular idea and probably not one that will make the show or whatnot, but like it, it's because I care about women. That's where my ideas about that come from. But that's not ever like a thought that anybody's willing to entertain. Automatically, you believe this, therefore you are a Nazi. And Christian conservatives do the same thing. They do the exact same thing. Ugh, feminism, how embarrassing. They assume these incorrect motives and they don't see the heart behind the person. And they write off the entire movement. And it's so frustrating because you feel like you can't ever bridge that gap. The motivation is not always evil. <laughs> I think that there's a lot of room to come together and learn. I think this polarized, look at the world. It is crazy. It is like everybody is unhappy. Buildings are burning down. And all we see are these caricatures of the evil enemy. And what's really unique about this to me is feminism, in my mind, and that's kind of the central question that needs to be addressed is who gets to define feminism? Who gets to put the boundaries on that? Because to me, what I love about Wolf when I first encountered them is that they don't have to agree with me, but they will defend me because I'm a woman. I think what's unique about this situation is this kind of hierarchy of crises, right? And I think the radical feminists and, and people like me have identified, gosh, if we can't even define what a woman is, we don't get to have conversations about abortion or about patriarchy. Like those are second level, third level conversations when we don't even get to have our own identity. So to me, it was just like, you know, when I discovered the feminist, it was actually because a radical feminist had read one of my blogs that had written to me and she started introducing me to like Sheila Jeffries and um, all this like academic, intelligent, meaty stuff that I, I just needed. 
And I was like, oh, these are people like me. And it just kind of broke down the sense of these are crazy, wackadoodle, man-hating women, but they're actually smart. They're intelligent. They care passionately about women's welfare. There's like a humanizing component of it when I was introduced to it. The only way that you're going to make any change or any progress is to change people's minds who disagree with you. And you can't do that if you're always shouting at them. So like watch the women's march, right? Like that's not something I was going to necessarily be inclined to go to, although I did write a whole piece about that man's statements about women. But it was really fascinating for me to watch. So, like, I did have a lot of friends who were more on the conservative side who wanted to march, but they're pro-life. And they were, like, literally ostracized, not allowed to march. And here are these men on the stage having the microphone at a woman's march. They were allowed to say for these women, like the sisterhood that you're just talking about, wasn't existing for them. They would rather, like, let them call women fish, which to me was just, like, I don't understand. It's the biology. Has seeing the left misogyny opened you up to seeing it from the men on the right as well? This concept of misogyny is not new to me. It's not like my eyes are suddenly opened to misogyny on the right. I've always known that it exists in pockets. I don't think it's as pervasive as maybe it's made out to be, but it does exist. And I've always seen it. I remember there were girls in my class in school who knew growing up that they would not ever go to college, but that their brothers would. That always bothered me. I remember having to wear a dress to school and I wanted to play basketball at recess. And so I had to wear basketball shorts under my dress. Like, I remember things like that. I remember going to church where the women didn't speak at all. They couldn't even lead the petitions. And I remember thinking, God made me as somebody who's supposed to speak. I just kind of felt it. And so those types of things were always on my radar. Those aren't new to me. I feel like a lot of times, though, conservative Christians in particular get pigeonholed or caricaturized as like the Duggars, who I'm sure are lovely people, but you know, they're, they're a little more extreme. So I will say it exists, but I don't find it as oppressive, maybe, as, as some might. I was surprised, I think, where my eyes were really opened was to see it on the left. That's where I wasn't expecting to see it at all. And that's where I was just like, holy smokes, you can't get away from it. It's everywhere. What have you learned from the lesbians and feminists with whom you've worked? The ones who I've had the privilege and the pleasure of learning from, I've just learned a lot more rich like history, I think, especially because as one who's always had previously written off feminism entirely, there's just so much I don't know. Like I said, I was so impressed, particularly by the academic nature of a lot of their contributions to this conversation, because they're really, really good. It's good content. It's good stuff. It presents really logical points that many on the right hadn't considered. And I think a really great kind of picture of that was when Kara went on to the Tucker Carlson show and basically gave him all of his talking points that he would use, you know, a week later and barbecue this guy, right? He hadn't considered any of that. That was all straight up radical feminist theory that she basically spoon fed him and then he used it effectively the next week. But none of that stuff, those arguments and those those thoughts weren't happening. Those conversations weren't happening in my circles. And so I'm very grateful for that. I think there's a ton of upsides. And I think if we're intellectually honest, we just need to name them what they are. I recognized very early on in my own personal fight against this gender agenda that no matter how legitimate my arguments were, it was so easy for mainstream media and for everybody else to completely write me off as a right-wing zealot, bigot Christian. Even if I was completely right, because my heart was not rooted in the faith parts, although those do exist. I mean, I felt this heavy weight of oppression from this as a survivor of sexual trauma and all of that. I thought this is really unfair to women. 
but nobody would hear me. And what I realized really early on was that in order to challenge that narrative, we needed leftist voices. And I knew that this is a woman's issue, not a faith issue or a right-wing, left-wing issue. And so I found some of those voices. You know, they weren't all that hard to find, but they weren't getting any platforms. Nobody would give them any space in a newspaper or on a news station. Like there was just nowhere for their voices to be heard. And so what I think was unique about the partnership is that we've got tons of platforms over here on the right that would gladly showcase legitimate, logical arguments in defense of this position on which we both agree. So uh, they needed our platforms and we needed their voices. And ultimately, it's about helping women. And I think that Wolf was very smart about the way they did it. I mean, they didn't have to sell out. They didn't sell their soul to the devil. They were very clear about their boundaries. And on this particular case, they're fighting against the erasure of women. And that's what they were going to use the money for. They didn't agree to never talk about abortion again. They just said they weren't going to use this particular money for it. So to me, it's very ethical and very reasonable and quite logical, actually, because, again, you can't even exist as an organization if women have been erased. You know, you can sit on a sinking ship and criticize the lifeboat, so you can get on one and figure out how to fight from there. I think it's kind of silly when we can see the gravity of what's happening to women right now in this issue. To sit and throw stones. We, we don't have time for that. Cammie Mueller, she's Southern blonde, total stereotype of a conservative GOP girl. And that's who she is, and that's what she is. And she has this beautiful heart, but she was in, in D.C. with us. And we knew the radical feminists were throwing a party after our speech. And I just have to tell you the story. She was terrified, legitimately terrified, because she knows how women like her are often viewed in, in those circles or whatever. But I'm not even talking 15, 20 minutes into the thing. It's like she was like this new person. And she texted me the other day and she was creating a care package for the girl who had hosted the thing and like sending it in the mail. And that to me, that's my version of feminism. And I'm not supposed to say my, but you know, that's feminism to which I can subscribe. That's what I'm about. And hopefully we can encourage more women to do that. And, you know, we're, we're not all monsters on the other side. So speak out, speak over, speak under, speak Speak loud so I can hear you. I want to know you. I want to hear your real voice. I want to hear your real voice. Your real voice. Your real voice. Your real voice. Next. WLRN Sekhmet She-Owl will read a statement written by Max Robinson, a detransitioned lesbian and member of Re-Sisters. My name is Max Robinson, and I'm a member of Re-Sisters, an organization for detransitioned and re-identified women, as well as female-born trans people. Re-Sisters formed to build solidarity between these populations and to fight for female liberation, particularly when the battle at hand will be better fought when armed with our perspectives. I've done a lot of speaking and writing about being a woman who stopped my FTM transition and reclaimed myself as a lesbian. Right-wing Christians have often moved to co-op my experiences and those of many other women like me, trying to utilize us against our own interests and the interests of females as a class. 
Having my words taken out of context and used by the right led me to understand a lot about the dynamics at play when fundamentalists decide to include radical feminists in their platforms. They wouldn't do that unless they knew that ultimately the supposed alliance would serve their patriarchal order. I could list many examples of hard right-wingers utilizing the words of G-transition women. For one, Michelle Cretella, formerly a board member of NARTH, the foremost anti-gay conversion therapy organization in the U.S., and current president of the American College of Pediatricians, an activist group of conservative physicians against gay and lesbian parenting. Cretella recently wrote a glowing endorsement of feminist anthology Female Erasure, specifically mentioning all the detransitioned women's narratives. Was this a heartwarming moment of female solidarity across political lines? No, Cretella blatantly lied about our essays, utilizing the idea of us for her own agenda. Conversion therapy advocates believe that being gay or lesbian is linked to childhood gender role confusion. They believe a wholesome Christian family, a gender-correct father and a gender-correct mother, prevents children from being gay or lesbian. Their issue with pediatric transition is that they believe it's against God's plan, that it makes permanent the role confusion of homosexuality, which should instead be straightened out. They think women like us are potentially useful as pitiable rhetorical objects, or that we can be perfected into stereotype-conforming heterosexual women. Most women who stop FTM transition are lesbians. Many of us have no intention of leading stereotype-driven lives. Many of us will continue to live socially, passing as men whether we want to or not. And all of us want the best possible lives for our friends and loved ones who still live as trans men. Nothing that hurts gays, lesbians, and trans men is going to be acceptable to us. We don't welcome someone like Cretella to use our words against us. But this is one example in a larger trend. The Federalist put a reporter, Stella Morabito, on the gender identity beat. The Alliance Defending Freedom started funding a group calling itself Women's Liberation Front. The Heritage Foundation hosted a panel discussion titled Biology Isn't Bigotry, Why Sex Matters in the Age of Gender Identity. The power differences between these allies ought to tell us a lot. Why is the powerhouse think tank that helped elect Trump hosting radical feminists on a panel? Who hosts the events? Who publishes the articles or airs the news segment? Who's got the money in their hands? Usually it's not radical feminists. Conservatives have demonstrated time and again that they are capable of extremely effective strategizing. Their current strategy relies on exploiting the inherent weakness in LGBT inclusion practices, which fail to differentiate between the needs of lesbians, gay men, trans men, trans women, and other queer-identified people. By fighting against what they call SOGI, sexual orientation and gender identity laws, which is any legislation impacting any member of these obviously distinct and internally diverse groups, the right utilizes legitimate feminist resistance against the excesses of gender identity, against the entire range of lesbian, gay, and trans people, as well as women overall. A feminist response would need to hold some nuance, defending lesbian, gay, and transgender housing and employment rights against the likes of the Heritage Foundation, for example, while also resisting laws which would render sex a meaningless category. A feminist response must be a real alternative rather than throw weight behind either side when neither side represents the interests of females as a class. 
that is all females, whether lesbian, straight, transgender identifying, or other. There is a difference between laws that allow gender non-conforming people, trans-identified or not, to participate fully in society, versus laws that entitle someone with a penis to housing in a woman's shelter based on a stated identity. A feminist response needs to account for this discrepancy. There is nothing feminist about allying with those who want to make discrimination against transgender, lesbian, and gay people as legal as possible. When women are used to promote conservative values against our will, we have even less control over how they choose to represent our beliefs and experiences. Co-optation, whether consensual or not, undermines the goal of female liberation. I write about lesbians, the ties that bind the closest friends, the joys, the thrills, they're still all true. You know I'd never lie to you, but you know women come and women go some i don't like most i don't know fewer friends and few agree in the lesbian community i first came out a great relief i thought we'd all be friends but sisterhood made enemies for many lesbians when we turned away from men how could we know the damage they had done yes life could be a paradise but men have made it otherwise so i cut my hair my looks i changed i felt scared at the start and i learned to smile much less for men and to keep my manner sharp oh but it's so much harder to defend myself from hostile lesbians abuse suspicion they feel free to treat me like their enemy but we That was Alex Dobkin with her song, My Lesbian Wars. Next up, hear a portion of an interview Thistle did with Natasha Chart. Natasha is a member of the Women's Liberation Front who currently sits on their board of directors. She is also a writer for Feminist Current, an online feminist news organization founded by Megan Murphy. She recently spoke with Thistle Pedersen about Wolf's decision to accept money for legal costs from a conservative organization called the Alliance Defending Freedom. They spoke about how that decision has sparked women's discussion and concern around co coalition building with both conservative and liberal organizations. I wanted to ask you the, a, a question that is on the minds of many a feminist about Wolf's decision to accept money from the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a right-wing conservative group, and agrees with radical feminists on some issues. What does Wolf agree with in terms of what ADF stands for? And where is their disagreement? And then also, how has Wolf been able to take this money and know that Wolf can continue to promote reproductive freedoms for women, for example, lesbian culture, and things that I presume the ADF are not so excited about? (laughs) 
Right. I outlined earlier that we agree narrowly on, as an end point, for very different reasons. We agree on the harms of the sex industry. We agree that women exist as a distinct legal class. I think probably everything else that, you know, our respective groups see as a need for political action and change in our society, we probably disagree with. (laughs) I can't think of anything else that we are particularly in line with. For that reason, the agreement was very narrow. They had read our legal brief, our, our court filing. They found our reasoning in it agreeable, and they supported offsetting our legal costs. Once we got that grant, it was used for what we had agreed to use it for immediately. I guess I would say that there was, for that particular agreement, a mutual accord, as there ever would be, that we agree on this, we are coordinating an action on it. We're not going to try to cover every other topic, or there couldn't be an agreement. We're not going to try to enforce restrictions on what they say, and they're not trying to enforce restrictions on what we say. Oh, okay. Well, that's a very important point. We still hold our beliefs as we ever had. And And we we can even promote them through our task forces and whatnot. Like if you go to the Wolf website, there are four task forces. You know, one of them is about reproductive freedom. And so that wording didn't change after accepting this money, right? No. There were some minor changes that we needed to make because of concerns about the incorporation process. This comes into people being anonymous, the difference between being an anonymous network of feminists versus an incorporated organization. As soon as somebody needs to sign their name on the dotted line on a government form, you have a different a different sort of organization than we're a group of women who loosely and informally coordinate together in our feminist activities. We made some changes for that reason because having to incorporate as a 501c3 means different things about how you're representing your purposes. But for working with ADF, we changed nothing. How can Wolf now not be seen as a front group for this conservative organization because the argument goes that Wolf has been bought by this organization now because money was exchanged. And so now Wolf is just a front group for this conservative group. How can that be changed, that perception? I mean, people can believe what they want to believe, but the women who first started this organization and those of us who run it now are as committed to feminist principles as we ever were. I had an ectopic pregnancy a couple of years ago and I needed I needed that removed on an emergency basis so that I can be talking to you here today. I'm not going to do anything that diminishes women's access to a full range of reproductive health care. That's just not something, you know, speaking for myself, that I would ever countenance or tolerate. The other women in Wolf that I talk to and know, and that's certainly a criteria for joining us, feel as strongly as I do for their own reasons. And people can trust that or not. They can see what we're doing and see if they believe us. This question 
and especially because it's been raised so much around the issue of abortion, is something that has bothered me for a long time in in terms of aligning with the left, because President Obama was pretty iffy on abortion rights. When the Affordable Health Care Act was negotiated, abortion rights were what was negotiated a way to get it. That was the big argument, one of the major ones. And he then additionally signed two further executive orders, making it, yes, absolutely clear there will be not one dollar spent on abortion in the Affordable Care Act that we're all defending now. And it brought life-saving health care to many millions of people and was very important. But how are people not compromised taking money from liberals who support that? You know, you believe what you believe, and people trust that or they don't. The idea that the West really supports women's rights, which I feel like is not always the argument, but is the common underlying presumption. People in the abortion rights movement have protested radical feminists organizing for abortion rights. We've had members seen on posters for abortion right actions that women with gender critical views are not welcome. And yet radical feminists work with these organizations all the time because they support abortion rights. Some of them work directly for those organizations and get a salary. Are they compromised? I mean, we could just play this game all day. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, I think we're all probably working for the same thing, and it's reasonable for women to have concerns and to discuss them. But, you know, I, I hope that our actions will show that we have tried to hold the line on women's rights so that future generations of women will be able to argue for better recognition of their rights instead of wonder what we lost. Because I feel like... You know, every once in a while, I go and I look up pictures of women attending university in Kabul in the 70s, and they look every bit as modern as their contemporaries elsewhere in the West. They could have been pictures taken in Berkeley, California at the time. It is not guaranteed that progress goes one way. It is not guaranteed that things get better for women. It is not guaranteed that we cannot fall so far so fast. I mean, there are women alive today who remember what it was like before women could open their own bank accounts. I feel like a lot of this discussion lacks depth of understanding of the ways in which the West is not always our friend and the ways in which our rights are not guaranteed and are tenuous and recent and that it's very urgent that we protect baselines that we thought were just assumed. You know, I I don't want our contemporaries to be the last generation of lesbian, bisexual, and autistic women who made it to adulthood without being told that we needed to take testosterone or consider getting a hysterectomy. Ten years ago, that would have been crazy talk. What are you talking about? What do you mean? Mm -hmm. That's just something from back in the eugenics era. Nobody would ever do that. And now any gender nonconforming girl, for whatever reason, her peers are increasingly suggesting to her, her teachers even. You know, there was that New York Times article, that mom talking about how her daughter's teachers are constantly checking, you know, are you sure she wants to be called she? This would have been unimaginable when we were growing up that that was happening. How much worse will it get? I was raised in a household where very hurtful things were said about people who were same-sex attracted. And that affected me as a young person growing up. 
when I got older and came to the realization that I was bisexual. It's been a long time processing the hurt of that, but for all that was wrong in that, I grew up to adulthood as whole and healthy as my parents could get me there. I did not have people telling me I was really a boy. And that's something where I think we need to look at this from a how far could we fall argument, where people are just micro-examining the actions of their children. Do you conform? How scary is that? How dystopian is that? Do you act like a real girl, or are we going to have to refer you for a mastectomy? Are you a real girl? Are you sure? Do you like the pink dresses enough? Do you like the bows enough? That's frightening. And I wonder if everyone having these discussions is taking that seriously enough. Because I take it seriously and it it really worries me. Are Mm -hmm. we going to have lesbians in a generation? Will there be any? Will they make it to adulthood without believing that they're men? When Mm -hmm. everybody in society is telling a child that they're wrong, what does the child think? It's a rare person who says, no, it's you who are wrong. Right. But there are teenage girls speaking out and saying, I am a girl and I'm a lesbian and I'm not going to wear dresses. There are teenagers that are doing that, but probably with a lot of pushback and lack of support because it's going against the grain these days. I read your situation analysis internal Wolf document, and I really feel the way to fight extremist thoughts and culture and ideology is to, first of all, recognize that it's happening and do a lot of research, expose it, and create an organization like Wolf to get organized and to fight back. The situation is so dire, as is described in the situation analysis document, that It's like we don't really have a choice but to form coalitions. And also, like you said, when men form coalitions, they're praised for it. So if women are going to find some common ground and put aside other areas that we disagree on, to move forward with an action plan when we've got a crisis situation on our hands, why can't we unite and come together and have respect for a diversity of tactics? So, you know, it's Filing lawsuits and going down that legal path is not for you as a feminist activist, and you're more into street art. That's great. Do it. You know, but let's not tear each other down. Absolutely. I was reading a lesbian history statement just this morning about a woman who remembered in the 80s when Reagan had told all the women's shelters that they had to fire all the known lesbians on staff or lose federal funding. I've never heard that. What, what year was that? that had happened. She did not give a precise date. It, it was in the 80s. So, I mean, I can absolutely understand women who have a very vivid memory of these things, not wanting to take the route that we've taken, or for other reasons. And they don't have to do that. I certainly don't think that this is the only way to engage. It's just the way that we've found and that we ended up having the connections and background. And when I say connections, I mean we made friends with people <laughs> through contacts, through, you know, the Just Want Privacy campaign in Washington State. Kaylee Trillerhaver reached out to Miriam Ben Shalom, and that's where a lot of this got started. 
You are listening to WLRN. Brought to you by the totally excellent radical feminists at Women's, Women's Liberation, Liberation Radio, Radio, Radio News. News. Recent discussions around the ethics of coalition building between radical feminists and the right have been heated, passionate, and in many instances quite polemical, further exacerbating the wound that already exists between feminist women on the left and women whose personal and political leanings are more traditionally conservative. Activity and bridge building between radical feminists and the right has been referred to by leftist women as, quote, collusion, unquote, power brokering by the right and, quote, wildly off-target co-optation intended to neutralize radical feminist action, unquote. Polemics aside, what is clear in much of the criticism of this kind of coalition building is that leftist thinkers are arriving at the table obviously quite biased against not just the right, but the women working within it. It is also apparent that no room is given for anyone who might deviate from what is assumed to be the norm on the right. Leftist thinkers don't seem to be asking themselves, Are there women on the right who we can work with who might actually have good intentions and not themselves be evil incarnate? Another point also seems to be slipping through the cracks of analysis on the left. Just as there exists the commonality of misogyny between both right and left-wing males, there exists also the common thread of oppression and victimhood from male violence in all its forms, among all women, regardless of their political affiliation, race, economic status, or religion. Women on the right are women too. Let us not forget that the majority of people in power who are drafting and pushing policy on the right are actually men. That's not to say that women on the right are not involved. They are. However, to overlook the role of men as the overwhelming majority in the structures of power on the right seems to be an epistemic misstep in our analysis. Could there be feminism on the right that the left perhaps doesn't understand because they're too walled off to any possibility of communication or cooperation? And furthermore... What does the right even mean in relation to women? Does it mean conservative? Is it faith-based? Is it strictly Christian? Are all right-wing women unabashedly capitalist in a neoliberal Randian sense? Are they all morally objected to the practice of abortion? Most of the time, when we reference the right wing, all of the aforementioned qualities are conceived of as one and the same, a homogenous and rigid sort of entity that is, more often than not, assumed to be paired with an arrogant white person. However, there is nuance within this taxonomy that deserves discussion because it is key to building better relationships with women who we may disagree with, but can work with. One such example of nuance is feminism on the so-called right by the Women's Ordination Conference within the Catholic Church. This June, they're holding their own symposium in Chicago called Feminist Persistence and Resistance. Take a look at their blog, and you can find articles discussing the health and necessity of claiming and voicing anger to power at the Vatican, among other things. To be a woman of faith and service in a long-standing, patriarchal, and often oppressive institution carries its own burdens. In fact, many women of faith and service are subjected to violence and rape around the world, not because they are women of faith and service working in a right-wing institution, but because they are women. And to be a woman, appealing and fighting for the elevation of women within the power structures of historically patriarchal institutions like the Catholic Church, it is not only difficult, it's dangerous because it places the women who do so in the public eye. If I and my radical feminist sisters don't agree with the practices, history, and belief system of the Catholic Church, that's fine. 
However, to silence the voices of the women who work within these institutions out of our dialogue and shut them out of any interaction, discourse, or action work whatsoever, that's not altogether different than what men do to women in general. So we have to ask ourselves, is what we are doing feminism or misogyny in action? There are still other ways that nuance can be gleaned from the right. For example, along the lines of conservatism generally, there is the divergence between those who are fiscally conservative and those who are socially conservative in a policy sense. And while it's probably safe to say that the overwhelming majority of fiscal conservatives in the United States happen to be white, there are many conservatives who are in fact not white, nor are they Christian, nor are they morally objected to the practice of abortion. A woman can be fiscally conservative and pro-choice, but does that make her right-wing? Or alternatively, she can be a pro-life Christian who is not a capitalist and favors liberal social policies such as welfare and green energy. The conundrum is that she's labeled a right-wing conservative merely based on her faith and moral objection to abortion, not because of her fiscal or other social policy orientation. The issue of abortion has long been the meter stick by which women have been judged in relation to the feminist movement. Exercising opposition to a woman's right to choose what to do with her own body is often attributed to women lacking awareness of their own oppression and the oppression of women around the world, or to being socially conditioned from birth by the church and the men in their lives. And in many cases, it is just that. However, the issue of faith is a very real, a very personal, and a very tricky one. It is also one that is not easily abandoned even after a woman discovers the truth about her own and other women's oppression. This kind of faith is felt deeply, is not a phenomenological experience relegated solely to the domain of interior Christianity, but also to Buddhism, Judaism, Hinduism, and Islam. The conviction of spiritual faith and the moral objection to taking life, no matter how small, is a conviction shared across cultures and regions of the world, and it is difficult for some atheists to wrap their minds around. It is predicated on the notion of sacredness, not necessarily intelligent creation, but the sacredness of life. Feminists must understand that women of faith are still women and deserve to have their voices heard and be included in dialogue without being violently silenced and relegated to the sidelines, made to feel as though they are the enemy. They are not. This divisiveness must end. We can and should unite with all women in the struggle to protect all women. If my sister, who wants to fight alongside me, happens to believe in a male god and thinks abortion should be illegal, that is what it is we can still fight together on a range of other issues that we do agree on. Through our conversations and the time that we spend together, she may invite other women to participate. Our ranks will grow. We may gain significant ground in our battle concerning other pertinent issues, such as the trafficking of women and children, pornography as a social health crisis, etc. There is work to do. And through that work, her eyes may be opened to the reality that a woman's right to choose abortion is her human right, and that judgment is best left to God, or karma, or whatever. To reiterate, just as there exists the commonality of misogyny between both right and left-wing males, there exists also the common thread of oppression and victimhood from male violence in all its forms among all women, regardless of their political affiliation, race, economic status, or religion. We need to look at the results of coalition building and evaluate if they harm or aid us in the fight for the liberation of women. If we are able to make material gains and progress with women we disagree with, then the higher good should be to get things done. 
when we refuse to work with other women based on their political affiliation or religion, we are right where males on both sides of the aisle want us. Feminist coalition building should be reaching across the aisle. We must work together as much as we can. We must understand that we will never see eye to eye 100% with any one woman or any one group of women. However, we can agree to respect each other's beliefs and soldier forward as much as possible with the resources we have. There is so much work to be done. Our final piece for today's edition comes from the Stop Trans Chauvinism Collective, read by Sekhmet Shiaw. Please be sure to check out the links provided on our website under the post for this edition for additional statements from the Stop Trans Chauvinism Collective, Ruth Greenberg, and Natasha Chart. It has become popular amongst some feminists to assert their support for coalitions with the Christian right on a single issue, as though they automatically advance women's rights. We cannot afford a blind faith in these coalitions, but need to put in the work necessary to figure out whether they do in fact benefit the oppressed at the time they're undertaken. It is too tempting to simply assert that the feminists in these coalitions are retaining their independence rather than looking at what's really happening. For instance, if feminists simply happen to agree with a conservative group on one piece of legislation, that would be one thing. It's quite another when feminists enter coalitions with far more powerful and resourced extremists and are pushed into further and further public alignment with them and into making little public critique of them. That's not a sign of political independence. When gender abolitionist feminists do this, it creates the impression that we believe gender identity legislation is a bigger threat to women than the right-wing attacks. That's a fast way to appear extremely out of touch. Feminists who have aligned with right-wing Christians have made the task of opening up discussion and acceptance of gender-critical thought amongst the oppressed are far more natural allies, so much more difficult. Gender-critical thought is going to be seen by the public as a right-wing ideology. It will be harder for feminists to dissuade them of this impression. We feminists always need to retain an independent voice. Anything that threatens this is not worth it. That concludes our 13th edition podcast for Thursday, May 4th, 2017. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to catch our next edition on Lesbians, airing on June 1st. Also, be sure to like, share, and comment on today's edition, and become a fan of WLRN's Facebook page, listed under Women's Liberation Radio News. This is Thistle Patterson, signing off for now. I'm Sagmet Shiaul. If you enjoy listening to WLRN, please consider donating to our t-shirt fund via PayPal on our website. Once we raise enough money for station t-shirts, we'll select two lucky winners to receive their own for free. Check out our t-shirts tab for more information. We only need $150 more to make our t-shirt order. Please consider donating today. Today's podcast was produced by our in-house sound goddess, Jenna DeQuarto. Thanks for listening. This is Niall Pierce, signing off. And I'm Jenna DeQuarto. If you'd like to get in touch with WLRN, please email us at wlrnewscontact at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, stay strong. But how will we find our way out of this? What is the antidote for the patriarchal kiss? And then after that, where is home? Tell me.